On the morning of July 20th, 1885, 48-year-old banker J.P. Morgan set sail down the Hudson on his massive yacht, the Corsair. But it was no ordinary pleasure cruise. Rather, Morgan had taken it upon himself to negotiate a truce between the feuding presidents of America's two largest railroad companies, the New York Central and the Pennsylvania Railroad. They were locked in a battle for control over the northeastern United States and doing everything they could to undercut one another. But thanks to the slashed prices on fares and freight, shareholders feared that both companies would eventually fall into bankruptcy. So many rushed to sell their stock. But J.P. Morgan, the custodian of Wall Street, was not about to let this explode into another crash like 1873. After picking up Chauncey Depew, president of the New York Central, and George H. Roberts and Frank Thompson, president and vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, Morgan dropped anchor and began the negotiations. Though he let his guests do most of the talking, Morgan had no intention of docking until the two parties had reached an agreement. The market and America's financial future depended on it. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're exploring the lives of American robber barons of the Gilded Age. Unlike most traditional dictators, these tyrants wielded capitalist power to control the lives of the working class, generating personal wealth as never before. Today, we're exploring the life of John Pierpont Morgan, the man who was not only the godfather of Wall Street, but also its arbiter and conscience, an enormous role in an era where the American financial system was pretty much an unregulated Wild West. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. J.P. Morgan wasn't as vicious as many of his contemporaries, perhaps because he was born into wealth and privilege. He didn't have to stomp on as many people to get to the top because he was already there. Still, that didn't mean he had nothing to prove. Both sides of his family were highly respected. 
His maternal grandfather was a progressive abolitionist reverend known for his spellbinding, tempestuous sermons. From his reverend grandfather, J.P. Morgan, or Pierpont as he was commonly known, inherited a flair for the dramatic and a love of art, in addition to a skin condition called acne rosacea. Meanwhile, on his paternal side, Pierpont inherited banking acumen. The dynasty began with Pierpont's great-grandfather. When he died, he left his son Junius an estate worth $1 million, more than $33 million in 2021 dollars. Junius kept up his father's business with aplomb. The Morgan bankers weren't just good with money. They also had style. More in line with an old-world European banking ethic, which privileged civility and reputation rather than the aggressive, unscrupulous U.S. style. The Morgans typically engaged in deals that were honest and fair. They carefully evaluated every aspect of every transaction and did business with clients who operated the same way. In 1837, John Pierpont Morgan was born into this urbane environment where he lacked for nothing material. But young Pierpont's health was another matter. Beyond the acne rosacea facial rashes he inherited from his grandfather, Pierpont also suffered from fainting spells, headaches, and rheumatic fever. These ailments would plague him throughout his life and become a source of immense embarrassment and shame. But if he couldn't control his myriad health problems, Pierpont was determined to exert complete command over every single other thing he could, including his reputation and finances. Despite his poor health, Pierpont, like the other men in his family, was high-spirited, resourceful, but he was also moody. And just like the other Morgan men, he demonstrated a keen financial instinct. Unlike most young boys, Pierpont kept detailed ledgers tracking his purchases of candy and fruit. At the age of 12, he also found a way to make money by charging his classmates a fee to view a diorama he'd built, recreating the landing of Columbus's ship. The young Pierpont's natural instinct for money was, in many respects, a godsend. Because, like the sons of other well-heeled bankers, Pierpont's future was preordained. He would follow his father into the family business. In 1854, Junius Morgan moved the family to London. But he sent 17-year-old Pierpont to a Swiss boarding school and then a German university. There, Pierpont became interested not only in mathematics, but also with art history an interest that would only grow more keen as he got older. After receiving his European education, Junius secured Pierpont a job at a banking firm in New York. But Junius wanted his son to learn the trade from the ground up, so the job was a lowly one. Pierpont was a clerk. Even as a clerk, however, Pierpont stood out from the crowd. His work ethic was second to none, and his superiors responded to his confident demeanor. Meanwhile, Pierpont also showed an uncanny aptitude for networking among New York's elite. He forged relationships with prominent bankers and businessmen and began a courtship with a young woman named Mimi Sturgis, whose father was a wealthy patron of the arts. Barely in his 20s, Pierpont Morgan was quickly on the rise in both his social life and career. But in order to gain full control of his future, 
Pierpont knew he needed to do something even bigger, like orchestrate a daring business deal. In 1859, Pierpont's bosses sent the 22-year-old to New Orleans. While there, Pierpont learned of a merchant ship captain who just happened to have a ship full of coffee and no buyer for his product. Pierpont saw an opportunity. Using his firm's capital and without his boss's permission, Pierpont purchased the coffee and resold it for a small profit. Unfortunately, Pierpont's bosses didn't approve of the transaction, specifically the use of their money. And as punishment, they refused to make Pierpont a partner at the firm. Rather than dwelling on the affront, however, Pierpont simply struck out solo and formed his own Wall Street firm. Pierpont's firm in turn became a subsidiary of his father's bank in London. Pierpont's principal duty in New York was to inform his father of conditions and changes in the American market. At the time, much of the American finance industry and business in general was propped up by overseas investors. Therefore, Junius Morgan needed a conduit for any pertinent information. Pierpont performed superbly in this role, providing detailed and acute analysis of the political and economic situation in America. This was especially important when the American Civil War broke out in 1861. Like most privileged men, Pierpont avoided fighting in the war by paying $300 for a stand-in to fight in his place. There's little to suggest that Pierpont saw the war as a cataclysmic catastrophe that threatened to tear the country apart. Instead, he saw it as something else he could use to his financial advantage. For example, he lent a colleague $20,000 to purchase 5,000 obsolete rifles for $11.50 per unit. Then the rifles were retrofitted with more modern components and resold to Union General John C. Fremont for $22 a piece. Pierpont didn't seem overly sentimental about his native country or those shedding blood to maintain its precarious union. He did, however, demonstrate sentiment with regard to Mimi Sturgis, who was diagnosed with an untreatable case of tuberculosis. He married her in the midst of her illness. During their wedding, she was so weak and sickly that Pierpont actually had to carry her around. For their honeymoon, Pierpont took her to Europe, hoping she'd somehow recuperate on the banks of the Mediterranean. Unfortunately, she succumbed to her illness only four months later. Pierpont never recovered from Mimi's death. In fact, he would openly pine for his wife for the rest of his life. Perhaps because Mimi's fragile health was something he tried his best to control and simply couldn't. In order to overcome his grief, Pierpont threw himself into his work, earning a small fortune as a Wall Street wonderkind. However, Pierpont's relentless work schedule, coupled with Mimi's death, exacerbated his own health troubles, particularly his acne rosacea. During these flare-ups, his nose would become inflamed, change to a rough texture, and double in size. Already self-conscious about his headaches and fainting spells, his nose would become a lifelong source of embarrassment for Pierpont. But if anything positive resulted from his myriad health issues, it was his doctor's advice to take up sailing. They believed the fresh air would be good for his skin and lungs. Pierpont embraced the new hobby with zeal and devotion. Eventually, he would commission three massive yachts, 
In fact, by 1870, all 33-year-old Pierpont really wanted to do was sail. After marrying his second wife, Frances Tracy, and producing three children in succession, Pierpont realized that sailing, collecting art, and monitoring his health was what he really wanted to pursue. So Pierpont considered an early retirement. When he floated this idea past his father, however, the elder Morgan wouldn't hear of it. Junius believed his son was destined for greatness, but he'd have to work to get there. Never one to argue with his father, Pierpont obeyed. And quickly found out that his father was right. Coming up, J.P. Morgan ascends to the top of the Wall Street mountain. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By the time he was 33 years old, Wall Street banker J.P. Morgan was a wealthy man. After years of making deals throughout the U.S. and Europe, with a little help from his father, Pierpont had acquired enough money to consider an early retirement. However, when he told his father Junius of his plans, Junius flat out said no, squashing Pierpont's dreams of a life of leisure. As an incentive to dissuade Pierpont's retirement, Junius arranged for his son to team up with another wealthy financier named Anthony Drexel, The pair formed their own outfit, Drexel Morgan & Company. And soon, it became one of the most well-respected, desirable investment firms on Wall Street. By 1873, 36-year-old John Pierpont Morgan had a thoroughly new lease on his career. But there was one other financier standing in his way of complete market domination, Jay Cook. Unlike Pierpont, American financier Jay Cook had absolutely no scruples about making money in a less-than-gentlemanly fashion, often using outright lies and fraud to dupe unsuspecting investors. Cook had made his fortune peddling government bonds. In fact, he became one of the first to target so-called everyday investors rather than the wealthy European financiers whose capital dominated U.S. markets. It had served him well. 
By 1870, J. Cook & Company was America's premier financial firm. But Cook's lies caught up with him when one particular scheme backfired. The seeds for the disaster were sown in 1872, when the Crédit Mobilier scandal made headline news. Crédit Mobilier was the sham construction company and financier of the Union Pacific Railroad created by its executives. And as it turned out, several congressmen possessed extensive stock holdings in the Union Pacific, so they had shown preferential treatment to Crédit Mobilier. Adding to this was an unexpected dip in the price of grain that occurred around the same time. Without any grain to ship, the railroad couldn't recoup the amount it had already sold in bonds. After these twin financial tragedies, panicked bondholders were eager to sell before their bonds became worthless. Of course, operating as he did, Cook didn't have the money to repay the investors. So in September 1873, J. Cook and Company, once America's most reputable firm, was forced to close up shop. This closure precipitated the financial panic of 1873, which reverberated across the entire American market and sent the U.S. into a depression. John Pierpont Morgan saw the crash as the fiasco it was, but also as an opportunity. He lobbied the government to allow his firm to repay investors the full price of their bonds, even though they had been issued by someone else altogether. Pierpont used his firm's money as well as matching funds from the U.S. Treasury. In doing so, he helped to stave off the complete failure of the U.S. stock market. In the process, he turned an impressive profit of $1 million. Meanwhile, after the failure of Jay Cook & Company, Pierpont's firm was now the most prominent and respected financial institution on Wall Street. And in Pierpont's mind, the moral compass of Wall Street. After all, he'd saved America from Cook's unscrupulous business practices. Meanwhile, in 1877, his father retired, ceding most of his London firm to Pierpont. Pierpont's business partner, Joseph Drexel, left the firm a year prior. Who else would wisely steer the boat of American finance? By 1877, 40-year-old J.P. Morgan was squarely in charge and ready to fully embrace that role. Pierpont wasted no time embarking upon a series of lucrative financial ventures that ensured everyone understood he was Wall Street's wise captain. Namely, deals with other wealthy tycoons of the Gilded Age. In one such deal, Pierpont was tasked by steel magnate Andrew Carnegie to sell $60,000 worth of railroad stock. When Carnegie came to collect his money, Pierpont handed him $70,000 instead, claiming he had undervalued the account. Confused and suspicious, Carnegie told Pierpont, will you please accept the 10,000 with my best wishes? Pierpont confidently replied, no thank you. I cannot do it. This was Pierpont's theatrical way of proving not only the strength of his moral character, but his financial acumen and status. That $10,000, about nine times the average American salary, meant nothing to him. By the late 1870s, image and theatrics were as much a part of Pierpont's character as his business acumen. An intimidating man, 
Pierpont used his imposing size to his advantage. Though he was never physically aggressive, his bulk was usually enough to intimidate almost anyone. He also seemingly began to lean into what had caused him embarrassment as a child, his nose. Though he was still self-conscious about it, some believed his nose was one of the most intimidating tools in his arsenal. The other was his temperament. As someone who never achieved control over his various ailments, Pierpont exerted precise, nearly surgical control in other ways. He had an innate knack for reading people. He knew exactly what to say and when in order to get what he wanted. In 1879, it was qualities such as these which led William Vanderbilt, son to the famed railroad tycoon, to choose Pierpont to oversee the largest stock IPO ever offered at the time, 250,000 shares of the New York Central Railroad. These days, an IPO is a carefully choreographed event and often an enormous windfall for the founders of any corporation. But in 1879, there was no guarantee that an IPO would be lucrative or even profitable. Instead, they were often a sign that a company was running low on money and needed an infusion of cash. As such, they inspired little confidence in investors or the public at large. And naturally, Vanderbilt feared that the value of the New York Central would drop precipitously. But once again, Pierpont proved why he was the smartest man on Wall Street. First, his own company bought 50,000 shares of New York Central, and he was given a seat on the board of directors. Then, Pierpont sold another 45,000 shares to three other railroad magnates to cement the sort of anti-competition truce between them. This way, they would not purposely tank the stock price. Most impressive of all, he managed to sell the bulk of the stock to the kinds of foreign investors who had largely abandoned American stocks and bonds after the Panic of 1873. They were willing to do business with J.P. Morgan based solely on his reputation. And just like that, almost in a flash, all 250,000 shares were sold. One of the largest IPOs up to that time had gone down with almost no fanfare. In fact, few people were even aware of the transaction until well after it transpired. Needless to say, the value of the company was secure, and Pierpont earned a nice commission. With his legacy and reputation also secure, Pierpont began to truly bask in the glow of his success and spread his considerable fortune around. He bought a massive brownstone in Manhattan, which was the first residence in the city to use electric lights. He commissioned the building of his yacht, the Corsair, and soon began collecting art at a ferocious pace. He also joined almost 20 private clubs and built his own, the Metropolitan Club, or the Millionaire's Club. In his youth, Pierpont had always been quite handsome and fit, but now, in his 40s and rich, he was content to let himself go to a considerable degree. He began smoking massive cigars, a reported 20 to 30 a day. He also stopped exercising and began consuming more food and alcohol. Meanwhile, he began to dabble in extramarital affairs, usually aboard his yacht. And his yacht even became the scene of tense and seminal business negotiations. 
Among the most important was the 1885 Corsair Compact, which successfully ended a bitter feud between the New York Central and the Pennsylvania Railroad. By helping negotiate the truce, Pierpont helped avert a major financial collapse. Unfortunately, there were other financial panics threatening the American economy, namely the Panic of 1893. Once again, the drama was largely a result of the chaotic finances plaguing American railroad corporations. At the time, railroads comprised 60% of the commodities traded on the New York Stock Exchange. But as we've discussed, these were often run by men who were unethical and unscrupulous. And although Pierpont had negotiated the Corsair Compact between competing railroad tycoons only eight years before, this group of men refused to work with Morgan to cut a deal. Instead, over one-third of the railway companies in the United States required government assistance to avoid bankruptcy. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough. But Pierpont refused to let things spin further out of control. So, once again, he used his power and influence to fix the situation. Pierpont reorganized the bankrupt railroads into a single cartel, all under his control. Something he would start doing so frequently that the process became known as Morganization. Now, in addition to his control of Wall Street, he controlled one-sixth of the American railway system. At the time, few people objected to Pierpont's vast and dubious legal enterprise. In fact, many were grateful that he had stepped in to rescue the fledgling industry. They thought it was only fair that he profit from it. According to historian Ron Chernow, Morganization was viewed benignly as the exercise of fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. Pierpont didn't spin webs or plot paths to power. Rather, he had a messianic faith in his ability to reorder businesses. If he could tidy up America better than anyone else, so be it. And yet, somehow rescuing and restructuring the finances of the American railways wasn't even Pierpont's most stunning feat of the 1890s. By 1894, it appeared that even rescuing the railroads was only a band-aid for a hemorrhaging Wall Street. In the wake of the Panic of 1893, many international investors started to withdraw money and gold from the American market. This run on gold was disastrous stateside, where the gold standard was still in effect, meaning basically that there always had to be enough gold in the country to back up America's paper money. A lack of gold could decimate the value of American money and lead to rampant inflation. By 1895, the situation had grown so dire that according to Ron Chernow, at fashionable Manhattan restaurants, sporting men placed wagers as to when America would go bust and declare its inability to redeem dollars for gold. Of all the financial panics to occur during Pierpont's lifetime, this seemed the most consequential and immediate. He knew that the only way to fix the current crisis was if he made the biggest gamble of his life. Coming up, J.P. Morgan's most audacious financial undertaking secures his legacy as America's most brilliant banker. Now back to the story. At the beginning of 1895, Wall Street once again faced a potential collapse. 
A global run on gold resulted in the draining of gold reserves in U.S. banks. Of all the crises the United States faced, this one seemed to have the potential of crippling the nation forever. President Grover Cleveland sought to fix the situation by issuing bonds. These would allow the government to buy back precious metal. Unfortunately, an unfriendly Congress refused to indulge this idea. By January 24th, gold reserves hovered around $68 million, hardly enough to sustain the paper currency in circulation. Acting on his own accord and refusing to let this situation get out of his control, J.P. Morgan reached out to his financial counterparts across Europe, urging them to ease the run on gold. In one fell swoop, he managed to convince several bankers to return $9 million in gold that was on a ship halfway across the Atlantic. But others refused to budge. With time running out, Pierpont and a handful of the most prominent bankers in the United States traveled to Washington to meet with President Cleveland and formulate their own plan. For the bulk of the meeting, Pierpont sat silently and listened, waiting for just the right moment to interject. After several tense hours, a clerk informed the Treasury Secretary that gold reserves were down to their last $9 million. Finally, Pierpont broke his silence. He informed the group that he knew of a $10 million withdrawal that was in the process of occurring. Pierpont proclaimed, If that $10 million draft is presented, you can't meet it. It will all be over before 3 o'clock. With all eyes on him, Pierpont presented his plan. He would team up with the Rothschild banking houses in London and New York to obtain 3.5 million ounces of gold in exchange for $65 million worth of 30-year gold bonds. These were bonds which matured after 30 years, earning the investor a percentage of interest year over year, backed by the value of gold. Pierpont also guaranteed that the gold would remain in U.S. banks. Basically, it was a plan among the bankers to manipulate the gold market in order to save the U.S. supply and the country's economy. Some alarm was raised about the legality of it all, but Morgan showed an 1862 statute that granted emergency powers for the Lincoln administration to issue bonds that could be offered for coin. If a similar kind of bailout had previously been authorized, then Morgan's plan was technically legal. So, Cleveland allowed Pierpont and the Rothschilds to issue the bonds themselves. Within two hours of trading, every single bond had been sold. In the process, Pierpont and the Rothschilds earned a tidy profit of six or seven million dollars each. Plenty of Americans were less than thrilled about the bankers profiting off the endeavor. But ultimately, it was a small price to pay to rescue the American economy from collapse. For Pierpont, meanwhile, the profit was virtually meaningless. What mattered to him was control. On this occasion, he had circumvented not only Congress, but had forced the President of the United States to embrace his plan. It was a masterclass in confidence and execution, and no one but John Pierpont Morgan could have pulled it off. To almost everyone else on the planet, engaging in a seat-of-your-pants scheme to rig the gold market in order to prop up a nation's economy would have been far too risky and dangerous. 
But Pierpont only played games he knew he could win. He only made deals he knew were safe. He had spent his entire life burnishing his reputation, which preceded him in everything he did. To him, this was simply another deal bolstered by a perfect instinct and spotless reputation. Thanks to Pierpont, for the remainder of the 19th century, the U.S. economy continued on a slow but steady rebound. And as the 19th century gave way to the 20th, he continued collecting art, building yachts, and meeting with kings and popes, all of whom sought his financial advice. During this time, Pierpont, perhaps on a whim, decided to enter the steel business in the most audacious manner possible. In December of 1900, Pierpont attended a dinner party in New York with the elite of American finance and industry, including Andrew Carnegie and Charles Schwab, the president of Carnegie Steel Company. At the event, Schwab discussed a plan for creating a steel trust, which was really just a monopoly. It would control every aspect and stage of production, shipping, and sales. But instead of simply joining forces with Carnegie, Pierpont had another idea. Always a keen observer, Pierpont approached Schwab and asked if Carnegie would be interested in selling his company. More importantly, Carnegie could name his price. You may remember from our episode on Carnegie that a few weeks later, in the beginning of 1901, Schwab revealed the proposition to Carnegie after a round of golf. The next day, Carnegie gave him a number, $480 million. When Schwab informed Pierpont, Pierpont, cool and casual as ever, responded tersely, I accept this price. After finalizing the deal a short time later, Pierpont told Carnegie, Mr. Carnegie, I want to congratulate you on being the richest man in the world. Carnegie couldn't help but gloat, but his elation was short-lived. Pierpont gobbled up competitors and formed U.S. Steel, and in April 1901, U.S. Steel went public. After its $1.4 billion debut on Wall Street, U.S. Steel became the first billion-dollar corporation in history at a time when million-dollar IPOs were not only abnormal, but still rather impressive. Despite his status as the world's richest man, Carnegie later remarked to Pierpont that he believed he could have squeezed another hundred million out of the deal for himself. Morgan replied, Very likely, Andrew. Unfortunately for Pierpont, his many trusts weren't long for this world. In 1901, after the assassination of President McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt took over, and among his very first mandates was to break up the monopolies he felt were controlling American business. Unlike his predecessors, Roosevelt chose to actually enforce the Sherman Antitrust Act, which had been passed in 1890 and was supposed to prevent megacorporations like U.S. Steel. In 1902, the U.S. government sued to dissolve Pierpont's Northern Securities Company, a massive trust Pierpont and various railroad tycoons formed just a year earlier. When the government won its case, Pierpont appealed the decision, which made it all the way to the Supreme Court, where it was narrowly upheld. For the next decade, all the major American monopolies would face protracted litigation from the U.S. government. 
In the process, the largest oil, tobacco, and meatpacking trusts were dissolved. Ironically, the most valuable corporation of all, U.S. Steel, somehow avoided this same fate. Even more ironic, Roosevelt turned to Pierpont for assistance with several pressing financial matters during the course of his two terms in office. First, he successfully negotiated a truce between striking coal miners and their bosses, securing the miners a significant raise in the process. Next, he personally oversaw and negotiated the purchase of the Panama Canal from France. But Pierpont's most significant intervention on Roosevelt's behalf came in 1907, during yet another financial panic. This time, it was the plunging price of copper that sent the U.S. economy into a tailspin. Since railroads relied on copper for nearly every aspect of their operation, the prices of railway shares began to plunge. The panic caused some Wall Street firms that were heavily invested in copper to go bust. One such bank was the Knickerbocker Trust Company of New York. After the Knickerbocker failed on October 22, 1907, Charles Barney, the bank's president, killed himself. The following day, Roosevelt's Treasury Secretary simply gave Pierpont $25 million of the Treasury's money to fix the panic. That was the level of trust, and more importantly, power, that the government granted Pierpont. The same government that was simultaneously breaking up his behemoth corporations. But Pierpont got to work on the problem, just as he had multiple times before. He concocted a plan whereby the larger and more solvent banks and corporations would prop up or simply take over those that were failing. Of course, this ran counter to the government's fervent anti-monopoly agenda, especially since many of Pierpont's own companies gobbled up the struggling outfits. It may well have been Pierpont's most cynical rescue package yet, but it worked. Once again, the U.S. economy avoided total collapse, and in the process, Pierpont made a whole lot of money. But this time, it would be the last time Pierpont or any one man would be granted such unrestricted financial power by the U.S. government. In late 1913, the U.S. government would create the Federal Reserve System to monitor the country's assets and financial health, putting the government in charge of the U.S. economy. The Panic of 1907 was an appropriate swan song for a man who, more than anything else, sought to be in control. He had to be the one pulling the strings, no matter who he was dealing with. For a sickly boy who grew up self-conscious about his appearance, this desire for control may have been a kind of compensation. But it was one that led Pierpont to become the most significant and talented financial mind in modern history. After 1907, Pierpont went into a protracted retirement. When he wasn't sailing on his yacht, he spent his time organizing his massive art collection and donating his money to charitable causes. Finally, during a trip to Rome in 1913, Pierpont passed away in his sleep at the Grand Hotel. He was 75 years old. To honor the legacy of the greatest American banker, the stock market stayed closed on the morning of his funeral. After his death, his son Jack took over his banking and business empire. 
Today, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank is the largest, most profitable, and most respected financial institution in the world. But no banker at J.P. Morgan Chase or elsewhere will ever obtain the power and influence of John Pierpont Morgan. Thanks for listening to Dictators. For more on J.P. Morgan, among the many sources we used, we found Ron Chernow's The House of Morgan incredibly useful to our research. Next up on Robber Barons is auto tycoon Henry Ford. But first, we'll be taking a week to run a very special four-part series from Spotify original conspiracy theories, They Knew. When a tragedy occurs, we often find ourselves asking, how could this happen? Oftentimes, the events were totally random. There's no way anyone could have foreseen what would happen. But other disasters are the result of negligence and corruption. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.